This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. We're a people of faith and tradition. And I think it's when you engage people on the other side that have those values, that share those values with you, that's actually you can build the bridges of coexistence. The Gulf Arab countries have never fought a war with Israel. Israel and the Jewish people are not the enemies of Saudi Arabia or Bahrain, the UAE, or, or any of the Gulf Arab states. The, the Gulf Arabs don't want to have anything to do with that kind of politics. Uh, many of them who are educated in the West, many of them who had Israeli and Jewish friends, and don't see why they should continue to boycott Israel. What you're about to listen to was no ordinary occasion, and I won't forget hosting it. What you're about to hear is an in-depth review of world affairs from an Israeli insider's perspective, with two great men who were in and around the very genesis of the Abraham Accords. Stand With Us UK welcomed Ambassador Ron Derma and Ed Hussein to the stage. And Ed flew in specially from Washington, where he now lives and teaches at Georgetown University. These two friends have been instrumental in creating the environment which led to those accords. This is my own recording of this public event. Incredibly, some of it found its way onto a Middle Eastern TV network, Al Sayak, almost immediately, with full Arabic subtitles, as Ambassador Derma spoke about Iran's nuclear threat from an Israeli perspective. And when his voice carries into that domain, will someone high up think twice? You can use what you hear in this podcast to explain Israel's position in the world. We talk about Israel's relationships with Russia, the Jews in Ukraine, even Russian military coordination with Israel over security in Syria. Then there's Iran and the JCPOA nuclear treaty, BDS and diaspora jury, Jeremy Corbyn. And a growing theme of Johnny Gould's Jewish state the religious relationship between Islam and Judaism and how it binds people in a region where religion is so important. And news about this podcast. We made number one in the UK for the first time just after the release of the Len Khodakovsky interview. When you grew up in Ukraine, you're, you're not a Ukrainian first. You're a Jew first. Not because you don't have any patriotic feelings toward your home country, but because you, you were made to feel like an outsider. That, that was true when I was growing up. Good evening to you. Welcome to this very special event with Ed Hussein and Ambassador Ron Derma as we discuss the Abraham Accords, one of the most extraordinary diplomatic breakthroughs of our age. What's next and how it came about. You'll hear some extremely well-informed opinions and valid takes on this subject. Believe me, this is not an ordinary event. Ed Hussein, it's great to see you again. We've become friends over a very short period of time. I've known you for just about two or three years. We met three or four years ago. Whenever we meet, uh, we always have a great kick about. And you just wanted to be introduced tonight as a writer and a political advisor. But to me, you're much more than that. And if you don't mind, I'd like to add a few personal words about Ed. He's an educator, is Ed. And over the last two years, he's become a good friend. And when we do meet sitting down over drinks or on walking tours of old London, 
where we discovered the beginning of Watling Street is not at Marble Arch. The conversation is rich and vibrant and full of ideas. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, Ed, was uh, when you wished that today's Iran should return to the days of Mordechai and Esther in Old Persia, which in today's language would be the return of the Shah with a Jewish wife, <laughs> and perhaps the leader of Tehran's Jewish community replacing Ibrahim Raisi as president. Um, he's the author of many important books, most recently Among the Mosques, A Journey Across Muslim Britain, a very vital read about a snapshot of where we are today in the country, and most notably, I think we'd all agree, The Islamist, which our mutual friend Tom Tugendhat, MBE MP, called, quotes, on my podcast, one of the most brilliant books in the English language. Please welcome Ed Hussain. Thank you. And sitting next to me is Ambassador Ron Derma, who was born and raised in Miami Beach in Florida. He earned a degree in finance and management from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and a degree in philosophy, politics and economics in Oxford. For three years, he was a columnist at the Jerusalem Post. And in 2004, he co-authored The Case for Democracy, The Power of Freedom to Overcome Tyranny and Terror. It's this book. It's been on my bookshelf for several years. I'm delighted to say I completed the autographs tonight. Natan Sharansky signed it for me in 2005. And today, since my children were born, since the publishing of the book, I'm delighted to say that they're in there as well. So thank you very much for signing it. And from 2005 to 2008, uh, Ron served as Israel's Minister of Economic Affairs in the U.S. From 2009 to 2013, he served as a senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And from 2013 to 2021, Ron served as ambassador to the United States. Uh, Ron is regarded as one of the most consequential ambassadors ever in that role, as well as one of the most creative and influential from any country during his tenure in Washington. One of Prime Minister Netanyahu's closest advisors, he was a driving force behind many of the era's most important diplomatic developments, working in close partnership with US counterparts on securing long-term military uh, implementation, defense funding for Israel, pressure on Iran, moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, attaining U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan, and achieving breakthrough of the Abraham Accords. Ron is currently a partner in Exigent Capital, an investment company in Jerusalem, a non-resident distinguished fellow at JINSA, a Washington-based think tank that focuses on U.S.-Israel relations. And now I've got competition because he's going to produce a bi-weekly podcast called Diplomatically Incorrect. <laughs> you have permission to switch channels occasionally. Ron is married to Rhoda. They have five children. They live in Jerusalem. Please welcome Ambassador Ron Derma. Thank you. <laughs> Gentlemen, a very good evening to you. We're going to start with something which happened literally within the last two hours. There has been another, yet another, murderous attack there seems to be a new trend of guns being used on the streets against Israeli citizens. Israel has been in a war of terror against it for a century. Uh, we've prevailed up until this point and will continue to prevail over our enemies because the people of Israel are an incredibly resilient people. 
uh, and I have no doubt that we will continue to be so. Before you ask your first question, I just want to say a couple things. First, I want to thank Ed for doing this event uh, with me. We've known each other for several years, and all the accolades that you showered on Ed <laughs> do not really tell the full story of the contribution he has made. I know in Britain, in interfaith coexistence, but also in our region to try to have Israel reach peace with our Arab neighbors. Second thing I want to say is thank you uh, to stand with us for hosting this event. It is a terrific organization um, for about 20 years. I don't know if there's a single organization that makes better material, both visual and printed material, than Stand With Us. But that's not enough. That's an empty shell. What Stand With Us stands out on is their pride and their willingness to stand up for Israel. And I thank you for everything that this great organization does in the UK, in America, and in other places around the world. Thank you for all of that. Now, yeah, you can give them a round of applause. I also want to say one other thing. This is the first opportunity I've had in seven years to speak before a British audience. And I want to thank you for something that happened, I think, around three years ago. Three years ago, a man who's an anti-Semite was running to be prime minister of this country. And I was sitting in, my, in the embassy, in the Israelis, Israel's embassy in Washington, thinking what was going to happen in this country. Will this great country, this great force of civilization, will it put in charge of this country an anti-Semite? And to me, what changed everything was the fact that the Jewish community in this country put their differences aside. And I know there are a lot of disputes and a lot of debates. We wouldn't be Jews if we didn't have disputes and debates. And we wouldn't be English Jews if we didn't have a lot of disputes and debates. But you put it all aside and you stood together and you took a stand. And the Jewish people cannot expect other people to stand with us if we are not willing to stand for ourselves. And that stand, I think, mobilized a lot of people through this very fair-minded country, and I think turned the tide, and you should all give yourself a round of applause for standing up against that anti-Semite. And thank you for inspiring Jewish communities all around the world. It's a great testament that when it really counted, that this community stood up. So thank you for that. Ed, welcome. People are a bit confused about Israel's stance in the war in Europe that we're now enduring in Ukraine, at least the people of Ukraine are enduring. And different people in the government seem to be taking different positions. What's your take on a war where Israel is being bashed? I looked it up today. Jerusalem is 1,300 miles from Kiev, especially what's it got to do with Israel? I think I defer to Ron on this. Ron's just flown in from Israel. Ron should explain. But I, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your take on it as well. Okay, I, I, um, I should begin by saying that um, it's a huge honor to be here this evening. Uh, I've, I've flown in from Washington, D.C. to be here with Ron because I hold Ron in the highest of esteem. And I, I also want to begin, if I may, before I, I will answer the question. I'm not ducking it. <laughs> I, I, I just want to say that um, we often forget that the normalization of Israel is preceded by the normalization of Judaism in the hearts and minds of, of you know, my fellow believers, 1.8 billion Muslims around the world. And in the Quran, there are 136 references to Moses. And that's many more references to Moses by name 
than Muhammad himself. Imam Asim is here from the Ministry of Defense. I don't want to kind of outshine an imam, but I just want to say that 136 references to Moses. And one of the most inspiring, motivating references to Moses, and this is all important because every time Ron and I met, we were able to talk about these issues in these terms. And it's that framing that we were able to then take to our friends in the Arab countries. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and name names because when you name names, what then happens is other people lose trust in you. But, but when you're an intelligent London audience, you will know that the decision makers in the Arab world who have signed the Abrahamic Accords, one of the most powerful things was to remember the prayer of Moses, with which I want to begin that in the Quran. That we, we, and all of our children are, are, are raised on this prayer that whenever we begin something, we begin with, you know, Rabbi Shrahli Sadri, you know, Rabbi, you know, my Lord, same in Hebrew, Shrahli Sadri, you know, expand my chest, because it was understood that revelation came to our chest and not to our heads. It wasn't an intellectual pursuit, it was an empathetic, emotional connection to God. You know, Rabbi Shrahli Sadri, wa yassirli amri, and make easy my matters in life. Rabbi Shrahli Sadri, wa yassirli amri, wa yafqahu qawli, you know, and make my words words of depth, uh, and also in that prayer was and untie the knot in my tongue, because Moses, we believe, you believe, had a stammer, or he stuttered. So that was the prayer that he, he made before he went to Pharaoh. I say this just to re remind you that you know, Muslims are not Muslims unless we believe in Moses and the Hebrew prophets and the Old Testament prophets. Muslims are not Muslims unless we appreciate that we're downstream from Judaism. And you know, it was a huge privilege and an honor to meet Ron in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere again and again because of our mutual friend who said, you guys are both similarly nuts on, <laughs> on, on faith, on theology, on history and its impact on politics. You should meet. And made me read the book on Menachem Begin to prepare myself to meet you. I hadn't told you this before. <laughs> okay. And it was understanding Menachem Begin's approach to making peace with Anwar Sadat that allowed me then to fully understand the necessity of that deeper faith-based conversation. And I think the first time we met, it was for about two and a half hours. The power of that conversation was that I was able to relay that conversation as a Muslim to fellow Muslims in various Arab capitals about Ron, about the government and the mindset that Ron represented and the people, the Israeli people that Ron represented in Washington, D.C. But more importantly, to various Arab ambassadors that they did not have a stronger ambassador in Washington, D.C. than Ron. And this applies to several Arab countries, some of the largest Arab countries, had for them in Congress the strongest voice and in the White House, uh, Ron Derma. And today I speak as someone who's just, as I say, flying, flown in from Washington, D.C. and I teach at Georgetown University. We miss Ron because there isn't that clarity of someone who understands that intersection between faith, religion, theology, history, and policy, uh, you know, alongside security. So. You know, it's understanding that mosaic spirit. So thank you, Ron, for everything you've done and everything you continue to do. And we hope and pray that this is the beginning of a new journey towards you know, another career without being too political. First, I'm, I'm going to be taking Ed on the road with me, just so you know that. And I just want a copy of this for my mother. It's all that's true. That's the most important. It's all true. Now, so thank you. on Ukraine and Israel. You know, on Ukraine and Israel. You want me to true. handle the Ukraine and Israel? I'll, I'll have a shot at it. and then Okay, you can go ahead. I think I'm going to give you the benefit of that you. as well. Very kind, Johnny. Thank you. Um, I think the issue here is that you know, you know, my, my friend and brother were in the Middle East for about nine days. We went to multiple countries. And the one thing that kept coming up is why is America pressuring 
not just Israel, but also its Arab allies to take a position on Russia and Ukraine. And the thing that I think we fail to understand when I say we in the West, that, that it's important that Ukraine fights back against Russia, and it's important that those of us who wish to support that genuine uprising for a nation state continue to support Ukraine. But our friends in the region have a different set of priorities. For our friends in Israel and our friends in the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Jordan, but especially in Israel, you know, Russia is on their northern border. And it's not a faraway calculation. And it, whether it was over Afghanistan or whether it was you know, previously over other countries, you know, our American allies have been found wanting. And therefore, it's appropriate that the Israelis, but also uh, the, the, the new Arab allies, make a consideration and a calculation based on their own national interests, uh, where you know, they're, able to, they're able to be what they are. And I, and I just want to end this answer by saying the following, that 100 years ago, you know, there were pogroms. 1,000 years ago, there were pogroms. But there wasn't a Jewish state to negotiate on behalf of various fighting forces in the world. What we have today is an Israeli government and an Israeli state that is negotiating between... The, the Russians, the Ukrainians, and others. And that is, I think, the role for Israel, and that is what Israel should be doing, is, is being the, the, the biblical promise, a light unto the nations as to how you broke a peace rather than take sides, condemn another, and continue the, the, the cycle of war. Because in the media, we always see criticism of Israel based upon British values. Why haven't you sanctioned you know, the Russians like we have. And of course, as Ed has so succinctly and beautifully put, as he so often does, Israel's position is different geopolitically and religiously, actually, as well. Well, I'll, I'll address British values uh, in a minute, but let me try to explain Israel's situation uh, with the war in Ukraine. So obviously, we have many interests here. The first interest we had was to ensure that Israelis who were trapped there could get home. We have about 15,000 Israelis and around 13 and a half thousand left. A little over a thousand are there. There's a couple hundred, I think, who are fighting actually in the Ukrainian army who are joint citizens. We also have an obligation to enable those Jews who live in the Ukraine. And there are about 200,000 Jews by some estimate who would qualify under our law of return. Those of you who don't know, that is the single most important law in Israel. It enables a Jew anywhere, in fact, even second and third generation, to come to Israel and to become a citizen because of our unique history of persecution. And the remarkable thing about what is happening in the Ukraine and what has happened in the Ukraine is that no one is asking, where is the Jewish community going to go? The major obsession of Jews before the last 75 years was where are we going to go when the inevitable blank hits the fan? Where are we going to go? Who's going to take us in? Are we going to beg a king or a president or a prime minister to take us in to open their gates? The birth of Israel changed all of that. Mm -hmm. It enabled the Jews to come. And that is a modern-day miracle, and we shouldn't take it for granted. The question now is how many are going to come, who wants to come. Up until this point, about six or 7,000 have already moved. And that's a very high pace. I think in 2014, when you had the invasion of Crimea, there was 6,000 for the whole year. Now, we've got 6,000 or 7,000 in one month. And maybe you'll see a very big wave, which could be one blessing from this terrible situation mm -hmm. that you have in Ukraine. The other thing we've done is taken non-Jewish refugees also, because we feel a commitment. Now, they're not technically refugees, because refugees are in bordering countries. 
But I think Israel feels a moral obligation because of our unique history to take in also non-Jewish refugees. There were about 20,000 non-Jews who were in Ukraine at the time the war broke out, Ukrainians, and obviously they're not asked to leave the country. There have been thousands who have flown into Israel from other places rather than return to Kiev or Lvov, they have come to Israel. And we've also, we first put a, a quota of about 5,000 non-Jews to come into Israel those who don't qualify under the law of return, we have breached that quota and now we've expanded it. Anyone that essentially has a distant relative can move to uh, Israel. And Israel is a fairly small country. When you're thinking in terms of Britain, mm. Britain is about seven times the size of Israel. America's 40 times the size. So if Israel's taking 7,000 Ukrainian non-Jewish refugees, in, a diff in, in addition to the Jewish refugees we take, that's the equivalent of Britain taking 50,000 or America taking almost 300,000. And I don't think that they've reached those marks. So Israel, I think, has done its job and on humanitarian grounds to ensure that people from Ukraine who were fleeing this war-torn area can come in. Uh, and we've also sent medical supplies, we've sent um, food, other materials for humanitarian, humanitarian goods, and we set up the field hospital, and we're pretty good at field hospitals. I think there are several dozen people in Haiti who are named Israel because of the earthquake that happened there and the field hospital that was set up. And out of appreciation, many Haitians named their kids Israel. Don't be surprised if there are many people in Ukraine in about 10 years or 15 years from now who are going to be named Israel as well. So I think we're doing our part. But here's the situation, and it's important to understand that. It's, what Ed said is completely right about Israel having Russia on our northern border. It, in Syria, Russia controls a good part of the skies. Now, we didn't ask that to happen. That's just the reality because the United States has essentially withdrawn its forces from the Middle East, reduced its military footprint, and Russia moved into that vacuum. Mm -hmm. And they're in Syria. Now, we have a country, Iran, that is openly committed and actively working to destroy the one and only Jewish state. And they openly say it. It's not like... Putin says certain things and people are guessing what he wants. You don't have to guess with Iran. They tweet out that they are going to destroy the state of Israel and they work to destroy the state of Israel. They also threaten our Arab neighbors. And they are trying to establish a beachhead in Syria to attack the state of Israel, just as they did in Lebanon. They took over the country of Lebanon through their terror proxy, Hezbollah. They are trying to do that in Syria as well to establish a military beachhead against Israel where they can launch attacks against us. Israel has worked to stop that. We have initiated hundreds of attacks against Iranian military positions in Syria. Now, up until this point, Russia has acquiesced to those Israeli actions. We have a process that's called, the, the work of art is deconfliction which basically means that our military guys call the Russian military guys a few minutes. We don't, there's not that much time, but a few minutes before and we say, you know, we're going to bomb here and here, so please get the Russian soldiers out of harm's way. And we continue to act. Now, Russia has acquiesced to this policy thus far. Why is Russia acquiescing to that policy? It's a good question. One of the reasons is it serves Russia's interests. Because Russia and Iran are competitors in Syria. They both want to protect Assad's regime. And Iran is kind of the ground forces, and Russia is the diplomatic and air power over it. 
But they don't mind so much that Israel is going and attacking Iran and Syria. It's better than them having to attack Iran because then they'll have to deal with the consequences. It reminds me when I was in college, I bought a bike from a bike shop. And a week later, someone stole my bike. And then the next week, I went back to the bike shop and I bought another bike. And then they stole my bike again. The third time I walk into the bike shop and I said, are you working with the thieves here? That like I buy the bike, they steal the bike. I buy the bike, they steal the bike. So what's happening in Syria? Russia is selling those weapons to the Iranians. We're bombing those weapons. Then Russia's selling them more weapons. Then we're bombing those weapons. Then they're selling them more and we're bombing them. And thus far, it has worked out. There was an incident, you may recall, about three and a half years ago where a Russian plane was downed. It wasn't Israel that did it. It was anti-aircraft weapons from Syria that were shot by the Syrian army that took out this Russian plane. But up until this point, Russia has not shifted its policy. There also is the personal factor with Putin. Now, Putin is probably the least popular person in the entire world right now. But Vladimir Putin is not an anti-Semite. Now, you could say that's a low bar, but those of you who know some of the history of Russian czars mm. know he may be the first Russian czar in a thousand years who's not an anti-Semite. There are people who believe he's a philo-Semite because there was a Jewish woman, and if you ever want to think about how an act of kindness, a simple act of kindness to your neighbor can change the world, there was a Jewish woman who lived upstairs from the Putin family, and when young Vladimir would come back, and his parents were not there. She fed him and invited him to her home. And he had a positive feeling and certainly not a negative feeling towards Jews. He even has a Jewish school teacher who he bought an apartment for in Tel Aviv. Now, how long that's going to last, I don't know. But I can tell you, as somebody who cares about the security of my country, Israel, I want Israel to have freedom of operation to attack those Iranian positions in Syria. And if Russia changes that policy, it means that Israel is not just confronting Iran, we will be confronting Russia. And then the question becomes, will the United States help us in that confrontation? Well, they're not enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I don't think they're going to enforce a no-fly zone over Syria. So Israel has to be very careful navigating it. But I want to say something else as well. Those who would berate Israel, whether it's in the UK or it's the US or anywhere else, for not being strong enough in confronting Russia, and at the same time are working with the Russians to finalize a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran that regime that is openly calling and working to destroy us, that is an outrage. Mm -hmm. I don't need to listen to their sanctimonious talk. They are making a deal with the regime, with the Russians, that endangers not just the security of Israel, but the survival of Israel. Because that deal, and maybe we'll talk about it later, that's a glide path to a nuclear arsenal. And it gives Iran hundreds of billions of dollars that they will use to establish those bases in Syria, to arm Hezbollah, to confront our Sunni allies. The Houthis attack Saudi Arabia. The Emirates are under attack. Bahrain is threatened. So you're having the leading powers of the world. And 
This is not Britain's finest hour. The leading powers of the world that are making a deal with that regime, with the Russians, and threatening the interests of Israel and our Sunni Arab allies. And I can tell you something, confronting Russia, this demand to confront Russia and appease Iran, that doesn't translate well into Hebrew. You cannot ask Israel to lead the West if America and Britain are not leading the West. The first thing you need to do is lead the West. Stand against all the evil actors, whether it's Russia and Iran. When we see such moral clarity, then you can come to your ally Israel. Then you can come to your Gulf allies and say, we need you to stand with us. And guess what? Then we would stand with you. Right now, we don't see that. And that's why we have to navigate through this very, very complicated terrain uh, and do the best we can to protect our own citizens. That is a very, very succinct explanation. I don't know everything. about succinct. That's the British understatement. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I'm here for. I got for. it. I that's got what, it. Yeah, it's kind been of a long I'm, time since I've been kind of what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. The British, and I have to tell you this, they've always This had is the British this, values bit, by the way. They've always had this brilliant way of insulting people with compliments. <laughs> You're, no one can do it like the British yeah, can. So yeah. thank you for that. But I'm succinct. Also, but I'm also Jewish. So uh, anyway. Um, Ron, you just talked about your bike being stolen every two weeks. Um, can we talk about your university days? Because I'm wondering how much of an influence on your adult life, on your politics, uh, this was, um, that you had a Muslim-Pakistani friend at Oxford. Did faith play a role in your friendship? Let's talk about Oxford, not about the bike. Well... I think it did. He, uh, my friend Abbas, who is here with us tonight, from Oxford, uh, a Pakistani Muslim, and I was the Jew, then American Jew, on my way to being an Israeli Jew, uh, were flatmates in Oxford. And I think, this is my own view, Ed is certainly, as you know, also, I, I, I don't have to give Dvar Torahs when I got Ed with me. It's like he does the job. That's the good yeah, thing. I don't true. Need, we don't have to stop for me to say words from the Bible because you're going to do enough. But I think actually identity is contagious. I think when you're with somebody who is proud of their own identity, proud of their faith, I think it's contagious. And other people start becoming proud of their identity and proud of their faith. And I never saw Abbas's strong identity and strong faith is a threat to me at all. And I believe, and I've believed this for 30 years, that if we're really going to get to the core of the conflict and deal with it, it's actually the religious leaders that can help us resolve it. Now, that sounds to a lot of people crazy because they think we have to, you know, get rid of all these religious ideas, just deal with secularism. But that's not the people of the region. We're a people of faith and tradition. And I think it's when you engage people of faith and tradition on the other side that have those values, that share those values with you, that's actually you can build the bridges of coexistence. And so if anything, my friends, a lot of Muslim friends uh, at Oxford, I brought a boss with me to my home uh, in Passover. My Jewish mother packed his suitcase with matzahs so he may have been the only Pakistani Muslim who's flown with boxes of matzahs on a plane somewhere. But I think it created uh, uh, an environment of mutual respect. And that was true of all 
of the classmates at Oxford. I know the situation in campuses today may be different than it was 25 years ago, but I think it's very important for student leaders, Jews and Muslims and Christians to work together and not to say everyone who believes in something we're going to put on one side and we're just going to deal with the people who don't. That's not going to, um, I think, transform the Middle East for the better because the people there have these traditions, and I think you, that's the way that we can forge that coexistence. Just to bounce off on Ron's point and your, your friend Abbas, um, uh, circa 2016, you know, this is a few years before the uh, Abraham Accords. Um, well, actually, if you just allow me to wind back slightly to about 2011, 12, at the height of the Arab Spring, um, I, I was then a senior fellow at the Middle East uh, section at the Council on Foreign Relations. And CNN wanted me to go on because there was an operation that Israel was conducting against terrorism in Gaza, it wanted me to go on to debate this guy uh, from Israel who was going to make the argument for why Israel is right to go into Gaza. And my point was to criticize Israel for its operation. Now, by then I had you know, already left Islamism, but I was still uh, and remain you know, a proud Muslim. The only way you score brownie points among Muslims, even to this day, sadly, with activists, is by bashing Israel. You know, you can be, you know, you can be pro-gay rights, you can be pro-everything, but as long as you're bashing Israel, you're still part of the clan, the tribe, you're one of us. But the moment you cross that red line and start becoming pro-Israeli, somehow you've sold out something. So in order for me to retain my credentials, I agreed to go on CNN and debate this guy. It just so happened this guy was, then, is, to this day now, I mean, Naftali Bennett. So, um, <laughs> so, and still on CNN, by the way, this debate with Naftali Bennett, and he makes compelling arguments, and my whole point was to critique him. CNN loved it, but there was a man here in London who did not like that interview. He picked the phone up to me and said, have you ever been to Israel? I said, well, no, I haven't. He said, well, how can you criticize a country without having visited Israel? I suggest, you know, you and I together go to Israel. That man, ladies and gentlemen, is my friend very quietly got me on a plane to go to Israel and to meet you know, Jewish faith leaders in yeshivas. And the more I met these faith leaders, the more I recognized that there is a complete symbiosis between where they are and where we are. You know, the yeshivas, the madrasas, the imams, the rabbis, the dedication to scripture, the one God. And that the, in the, the Quran saying, you know, the Quran says to Moses, that, oh, my people, enter the land on which enter the land which was prescribed for you, written for you. So all of this is in my head, and I, you know, to cut a long story short, I come back to Washington, D.C., and ask my friend, have you been to any Muslim countries? And he says, well, no. So I said, well, now it's your turn to come with me, to, you know, to reciprocate and come with me to, and he says, well, where should I go? I said, there's a big conference coming up in Abu Dhabi. It's so 2016 now, four years after the Naftali Bennett ping pong. Um, and in Abu Dhabi, there was a gathering of 750 Muslim scholars, and almost all of them, you know, imams and muftis, people who give fatwas, and from you know, major countries. The Egyptian mufti was there, the Indonesian mufti was there, so you know, a huge gathering of imams. So, is the only, you know, forgive me for being blunt, you know, white, English, Jewish guy in the room, and people come up to him and say hello to and say, have you been to the Middle East before? And at this point, my whole agenda was to introduce as a, as, a, as a friend, an English friend, and keep the other stuff quiet. And, and say, yes, I have. I've been to Israel. And people look at them and look at and think, you are here in Abu Dhabi in 2016 with 750 imams talking about Israel. And then proudly says, yes, I'm Jewish. 
And you know, that put me at a kind of, you know, this wasn't part of the plan, that you would, <laughs> you would come here and start declaring your, your, your Judaism and your you know, commitment to Israel. But it's what you said, Ron, about strong faith. It is contagious, because then people in the room, especially Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, who was the patron of the, of the event, who was then a signature to the Abrahamic Accords, who is now the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates, he and his team noticed something, that there were lots of Muslims there, there were some Christians who were scheduled to come the following year, but there were no Jewish people scheduled. So this one Jewish presence in the room made all the difference. The following year, they invited five rabbis. The year after that, they invited 15 rabbis. The year after, they invited 30 rabbis. And each year now, now we have the Abrahamic family house in Abu Dhabi, where there's a synagogue in the spirit of Maimonides, and then there's the St. Francis of Assisi Church, and then there's going to be Ahmed al-Tayyib Mosque. My point is that those small deeds, as you said, you know, make a big difference, but, but, but it was the normalizing of Judaism in Abu Dhabi before the acceptance of Israel. And for those remaining four or five years, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn if I say that our friends in government in the United Arab Emirates, whenever there were reports of pro-Hamas, pro-Hezbollah, pro-Houthi activities, you know, they can do things on WhatsApp that we can't do in this country. They know what's being said. Uh, they, they just remove those people from the country. They sent them back to Syria. They sent them back to the, you know, the West Bank, wherever else, in order to prepare their populations for the accepting, acceptance of Israel and of Judaism. And this is what's required as a precursor before it reaches the, the top level of ambassador, statesman Ron Derma sat in Washington, D.C. You need people on the ground making those changes. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that people in this room will continue that work on your own campuses and in your own communities, that you do those small acts of kindness that trigger big strategic change. Which brings us... And, and the moral of the story yeah. is obviously you should de debate Naftali Bennett on CNN. <laughs> yes, that's where it all starts. <laughs> Which brings us succinctly, uh, because Ed is British, to the genesis of the Abraham Accords, because as you say, it started on the ground, filtering up how it grew to where it is today, and why now for Israel? Is it important that it came about at this time? The timing is, is so crucial to the success of the Abraham Accords so far, is it not? Yeah, I think it, it, it's a very good question. I wouldn't say it's why now for Israel, it's why now for the Sunni Arabs. Why did they make this decision? Because Israel, anytime we face an Arab leader who was prepared to make peace, whether it was Sadat in the 70s or King Hussein in the 1990s, mm -hmm. we were prepared to make peace. The question is, what was the shift that happened in the Gulf, in particular in the Sunni Arab world? And I would say, go back about 20 years ago, there was an Arab peace initiative. First, there was a Saudi peace initiative in 2002, and then an Arab peace initiative. But I don't think that was a genuine initiative, and I didn't think so at the time. About nine months before that initiative, there was 9-11. Fifteen of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. 3,000, almost 3,000 Americans were murdered. And there was a real problem in Saudi Arabia with spreading this particular virulent brand of Islam Wahhabism within Saudi Arabia and all over the world. And the Saudis were under enormous pressure, enormous pressure in the United States, I'm sure, it was the case here and elsewhere. And about eight months after 9-11, in May of 2002, Tom Friedman, the columnist for the New York Times, was invited to Riyadh, and a desk drawer was opened, and they put the peace plan on the table. Uh, and I think that was an attempt to go from being terror masters to peacemakers. But if you would have asked the Saudi leadership at the time, 
If you could wave a magic wand and end the Israeli-Arab conflict or end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, would you? I think the answer would have been no, because I think the conflict served them, served their purposes, uh, diverting a lot of criticism of the regime that wasn't the most reformist regime on the planet, and I'm going to be a diplomat when I say that. That was 2002. Now, fast forward to 2012. In 2012, around the time that you were going with Jonti to Abu Dhabi, if you would have asked the Saudi leadership in 2012, if you had a magic wand that you could wave and you could end the Israeli-Arab conflict or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, would you? The answer would have been yes. So what happened in that decade? That was the beginning. The Abraham Accords, the surfacing of this came later, but that was the beginning. So what happened in those 10 years? I'll tell you what didn't happen. They did not translate Herzl's The Jewish State into Arabic. And a, and a wave of Zionism did not spread through the Middle East. But a few things happened over that decade. Number one is you had the Arab Spring, which concerned a lot of the regimes in the Gulf about their own stability, because a lot of people thought this was certain and was going to continue. Now, all of a sudden, the boat was getting a little rocky. The second thing was the empowering of Iran. This is a deeply dangerous regime. As Jews, we always focus on the danger it poses to us, but poses a danger to the Arab states, no less a danger. I always say they, they, the Iranians want Riyadh for breakfast and Jerusalem for lunch and New York for dinner. Maybe London will be afternoon tea. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. But they are dangerous. And all of a sudden you have this rising power of Iran. The second thing, was radical Sunni movements. Now, Iran is a radical Shia power, and Shia historically were not where the radical forces were. Iran's regime is an aberration, and Israel mm -hmm. doesn't have a problem with the people of Iran. But you also had radical Sunni movements. Al-Qaeda was 1.0, ISIS is 2.0, and there's going to be a 3.0. And those regimes in the Gulf are very concerned about those movements. A third thing, which I think is overlooked, is the United States was leaving the region. So if you think about it from the point of view of a Gulf leader, you've got this Iranian tiger whose teeth are getting sharper and claws are getting longer. You've got this ISIS leopard or whatever is going to come next. And then the 800-pound American gorilla just left the building. So they look around and they see a 200-pound gorilla with a keep on. They say, maybe we should work with them. So the first thing was they understood that their security interests in a world where America was leaving the Middle East was tied to actually having a strong alliance with Israel. And this is not something that's a political issue in the United States because President Obama and President Trump and President Biden, they don't want to be in the same sentence with one another. But when it comes to sending troops to the Middle East, they all have the same opinion. None of them want to get involved in wars in the Middle East. So they see the United States receding and all of a sudden Israel becomes an important security partner. That's number one. Number two is Israel is a global center of technology. Mm. We are a second Silicon Valley. Mm. Now, if you think about it, the Arab boycott of Israel is about as intelligent as Oregon, Nevada, Wyoming, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and half of California boycotting Silicon Valley. It makes absolutely no sense. And to the extent that you have leaders in the Arab world who are thinking 20, 30, 40 years ahead, and you do, and Mohammed bin Zayed is probably the first among them, but you have it in Bahrain and you have it in Saudi Arabia. They're thinking, why not work in a partnership with Israel? So their security interests 
and their economic interests drive them to an understanding that they want to be in alliance with Israel. Now, how do you do that? Because you have 60 years of baggage. You have all the hostility towards Israel. And that required us working underneath the surface and also trying to convince. This is going to be a succinct answer. It's already a succinct it's answer. Working. But we had to convince the U.S. administration to also get their policies right. And in this, we went to the Obama administration in its second term, and we failed. I tried with Secretary Kerry many times. President Obama, the prime minister tried with him. There's a real opportunity here of a change in the region. Take advantage of it. They, weren't, they didn't listen. For them, it was just about Prime Minister Netanyahu not wanting to make concessions to the Palestinians. They didn't actually see the opportunity. We saw it because we would have diplomats, British diplomats, French diplomats, U.S. diplomats, members of Congress, people, Australia, anyone who would come through the Middle East would come through Abu Dhabi, come through Manama, would come through Riyadh, then they'd come to Jerusalem. And they'd say, guess what, Prime Minister, you sound exactly like MBZ. You sound exactly like the Saudi leadership. You sound exact." So you understood that there was something there and we were having meetings quietly that still people don't know about between them. It, and they haven't leaked out. Maybe one day the prime minister will write a book and he'll talk a little bit about it. So we knew it, but we tried to convince the Obama administration we failed. And in fact, Kerry famously at an event in Washington said there are Israelis who believe, he was talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu and me, was sitting, I was in the front row, there are Israelis who believe that we can have a separate peace between Israel and the Arab states without first having a peace with the Palestinians. Because the feeling in Washington, and I'm sure it's the same thing in the UK, once you have Israel as peace with the Palestinians, you'll have peace with 22 Arab states. And I said, well, that's great, but what if the Palestinians don't want to make peace with us? So we're not going to move ahead with the Arabs in the region who'd like to make peace with us? So Kerry says at that event, he says, you're never going to have a separate peace. He says, no, 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 no and no. no. And it's too bad he said no four times because we had four peace agreements. Had he said no six <laughs> times, we would have had six. <laughs> but then what happened is we also tried at the beginning of the Trump administration to convince, and we failed. It took us a couple years to convince the Trump administration that the opportunity was there, that this was real. And, and to his credit, Jared Kushner had an open mind. And he went around the region and he listened to the leaders and he didn't have all the experience in the Middle East. And that was his big advantage. He was mocked for it and ridiculed. You know nothing about the Middle East. Well, he didn't have to unlearn all the nonsense that most of the experts know about the Middle East. And he went with an open mind. He traveled through the region. He built a relationship of trust. He was also perceived as a prince. Also, he was ridiculed for that. But in the Middle East, you know, as Mel Brooks said, it's good to be the king. And they'll listen to a prince. And he understood after about a couple of years this was real. And then I have to tell you, we wasted about a year in Israel because we were in a, a repetitive cycle of elections. And unfortunately, the whole accord happened only at the end of the Trump administration and not at the beginning. Because yeah. I do believe had it started at the beginning, which we tried to convince the Trump administration to do right out of the gate, we might be in peace with Saudi Arabia today. And when Israel's at peace with Saudi Arabia, the Israeli-Arab conflict is over. Doesn't mean the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is over. It's a separate conflict. They intersect, but they're not the same conflict. Doesn't mean that Israel's conflict with Iran is over. But the effectively, the Israeli-Arab conflict that we've had for a century is over once we have that peace. And I think had we started earlier, we could have finished. Last thing I will say, the time, those two or three years until everybody was ready to do this, was, it was not wasted. 
because the U.S. put in place a policy, a set of policies that enabled the emergence and enabled Arab leaders to emerge into an open alliance with Israel. One of those policies was they confronted Iran. The critical move by the United States was to confront Iran because the Abraham Accords in September 2020, when you're looking at the White House and you see Netanyahu and Trump with the foreign ministers of the Emirates and Bahrain, what do they see back in Riyadh? What do they see back in Bahrain? What do they see back in the Emirates? They see two leaders in Netanyahu and Trump who are confronting their worst enemy, Iran. That opens the political space for the Arab leaders to move into an open alliance with Israel. Despite all the history, you're opening the space for them. The second thing they did is they embraced Israel. And in the Middle East, the embrace of Israel was very important. You saw that with Jerusalem, with the Golan Heights, with Judea and Samaria, all of these decisions that the experts said are going to destroy any possibility of reaching peace did the exact opposite. Because our Arab neighbors see American support for Israel as a litmus test to how strong they're, how much they're going to stand by their allies. And it convinced a lot of the Arab states that the road to better relations with Washington goes through Jerusalem. And that was very helpful. A third thing they did was they didn't chase after the Palestinians. They took away the veto of the Palestinians over progress in the region. We gave a peace plan. We hope the Palestinians will join us. We hope they will walk through to an ultimate solution of our conflict. But we cannot give the Palestinian leadership a veto over all progress in the region. And in fact, I believe that if we succeed in continuing to expand these accords, ultimately to have a peace with Saudi Arabia as well, that's when you will see positive forces within Palestinian society emerge that will want to move into peace with Israel. And we will strengthen those positive forces and push back against the extremists by saying, you know, you're waiting for this cavalry to come. You're waiting for the Arab and Muslim world you're going to whip up to go and fight Israel. We're working with them and we're working with them on building a better future. Why don't you join us? That's the way that we can ultimately get a peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And hopefully one day, you know, invite me back and we'll talk about the conflict that used to be between Israelis and Palestinians. We're not there yet. It may take a long time to get there, but it starts with the Abraham Accords and expanding those accords and deepening the peace, the current peace that we have to show that this success story, how powerful it is for our Egyptians, for Jordanians, for everyone in the region to encourage other countries to come on board. We're going to put a date in the diary in about 2024 for that, I think. Mm -hmm. um, now, if I was doing a radio show, I would say, and we've got... Um, a commercial break. Yeah, we've got a commercial break. We're not going to do that. We're <laughs> actually going to say what's coming up. I want to talk about the warmth of the peace of the Abraham Accords in stark contrast to some of the peace deals before, for example, Egypt and Jordan. I want to talk about Iran and Vienna, the on-off, on-off talks, the danger of that JCPOA deal reconstructed. When are Indonesia going to come on board? Turkey changing sides, it appears. How close is that? And where are Oman? Oman were there on day one when the Peace to Prosperity plan was unveiled in that January winter's day in Washington. You know, where, where are they? I keep hearing answers I'm not satisfied with. I'm not sure where to start. Should we start with the warm peace, Ed? Let's talk about the warmth of the peace. I spoke to His Excellency Mansour Abulhul, the UAE ambassador, but there was so much like-mindedness between the Emiratis and Israel. That was the, the starting point. 
Yeah, I mean, th th there is all of that, um, but but th the warmth that the warmth comes from the fact that the the Gulf Arab countries have never fought a war with Israel. The Israel and the Jewish people are not the enemies of Saudi Arabia or Bahrain, the UAE, or, or any of the Gulf Arab states. Whereas with Jordan, um, Jordan occupied Jerusalem, Jordan f for more than 18 years. Jordan sees itself as the patron of the, 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 the Temple Mount or the Masjid al-Aqsa area. The, the Gulf Arabs don't want to have anything to do with that kind of politics. So their approach is, as Ron said, one to do with economics, two to do with security, three to do with the fact that there's a younger leadership in the Gulf, uh, many of them who are educated in the West, many of them who had Israeli and Jewish friends, and don't see why they should continue to boycott Israel, fund the Palestinians and Hamas, while the Palestinians and Hamas are in cahoots with their strongest enemy, i.e. Iran, and then on a regular basis in the mosques of Gaza and the West Bank and parts of Eastern Jerusalem attack the Gulf Arab leaders. Now, why would we continue to fund uh, those operations? And I think the, the, the other reason for the warmth is to ensure that there were Israeli tourists and investors coming into Gulf countries and vice versa. And it makes perfect sense that when you've got Silicon Valley and a whole group of investors in other sectors sat on your you know, regional doorstep, why would you want to continue to go and pitch in London and New York and elsewhere when you've got the Israeli uh, you know, brain hub? And, and this is not just 30,000 feet stuff. We hear it all the time in conversations that we're having with our friends in the region. And the, the, the warmth is also triggered by the fact that the Gulf Arabs are wealthy. Gulf Arabs are, are much like Israelis, wanting to travel a lot. I mean, Jonti and I were in Dubai uh, two weeks ago, and in the business lounge where you can hear Farsi being spoken by people about to get on a plane to Shiraz and Tehran, you can hear lots of Hebrew being spoken by Israelis who are just about to get onto a plane to Tel Aviv, and lots of Arabs looking between them, thinking, you know, there's <laughs> something going on here in the, in, in the lounges of Dubai airport that hadn't been going on a year ago. So the, the, the peace is genuinely warm. And, you know, you go to the... the you know, one of the things that I loathe about the way in which... Um, many countries have treated the Jewish populations is in keeping with history, keeping them somewhere in, in the outside of the city center. But in the UAE, if you, if you go, and I encourage you to all go to Dubai, you know, the, the tallest building, Burj Al Khalifa, inside which is the kosher restaurant, in which, you know, John T and I were there on a Monday night, 150 people, you know, restaurant totally packed, a kosher restaurant in Dubai with you know, 5,000 plus uh, Jewish community and growing. People are wearing yarmulkes with pride in a way that, you know, many people outside of here won't be. So I can go on in terms it's of, true. In terms it's true. of warmth of the peace. True. It's because where we started, where Ron said that there's a love and respect for faith and tradition, and they respect mm -hmm. people who wear the yarmulke because they realize they're covering their hair in a way that we've been asked to cover our head in prayers and, and whatnot in, in Islam. So there are those similarities, but I will say one thing, that yes, there's a warm peace, and it should be warmer still, by the way. We've got a long way to go. But there is also a negative... Well, not a negative. There is a there's, there's a there's another effect, which is you know FOMO on the part of other nations, 
um, especially the fear of missing out on the part of the, the, the Jordanians yeah. and the Egyptians who are now offering, well, look, we have Sharm el-Sheikh, we have nice beaches, you know, why do Israelis, you know, 450,000 of them to date, go to Dubai, please come to, you know, Jordan and please come to now, now Turkey and please come to Egypt. And somehow there's a lot of marketing going on in, 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 in Israel now to visit those countries, but the Israelis are astute. And they're thinking, no, I think, you know, you guys have been around for a few decades and you haven't welcomed us. We'll go to Dubai, where we, are, where we are welcomed, and where we have kosher restaurants, and where there is Chabad, and when there are rabbis, and where we feel welcome. So that, that warmth, I think, will only be exacerbated Amazing. in coming in coming years. Well, I, I'll tell you just to add to that succinctly. Um, <laughs> Can I get something the, from this? There are, uh, remember, Sadat, when he went to Jerusalem in 77 and made peace with Israel in 1979, the environment was very different in the region. He was rejected by all Arab governments. Actually, Egypt was thrown out of the Arab League. All the populations in the region rejected it, and Sadat ultimately paid for that peace with his life. I don't want in any way diminish the courage of MBZ, because it was an act of courage. I mean, it's, Netanyahu had a lot of vision. And Trump made some important decisions, especially to ensure that these countries would understand that their alliance with America would get stronger. But the one who actually deserves credit for the courage was Mohammed bin Zayed, who made this decision. It's a totally different region. Not only were they not thrown out of the Arab League, the Palestinians tried to pass a resolution in the Arab League against it, and it was completely rejected. Arab governments throughout the region were either silent which in the Middle East, those of you who understand how to read the diplomatic tea leaves, speaks volumes. Um, and to the best way that at least we can measure, the peoples in the region were very supportive. I think Yusuf Al-Oteba, my counterpart, the Emirati ambassador uh, to, the, to the United States, he told me a few months ago, he said they did a poll among young Emiratis and about 18 to 24-year-olds, and 87% of them were supportive of the peace agreement. So unfortunately, and, and I should say this, better a cold peace than a hot war, but we've had a cold peace with Egypt for over 40 years and a cold peace with Jordan for over 25 years. And that's not because of Israel, it was because of them. Because there were political, economic, cultural forces in those countries that were constantly militating against the peace. So if an Egyptian businessman would go to Tel Aviv and try to buy an Israeli uh, tech company, and then he'd go back to Cairo, his business might get burned down. And if a Jordanian intellectual went to a writer's symposium in Jerusalem and then would go back to Amman and publish something about it, he may never publish again, even though we're at peace with them for decades. That is not the case in the Emirates. In the Emirates you have, and in Bahrain, you have a peace that is coming from the top down and the bottom up. I agree with that. It's also because we haven't fought wars. You don't have that mm. history and that baggage. But you see the warmth of a people-to-people -people peace. And the challenge right now for Israel is how are we going to build a successful peace that can resonate throughout the region? And it's not just going to the Gulf and asking the Gulf for money. It's actually doing joint projects. And Dubai, understanding that Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Bahrain together can be a hub for not only 
investments in a broader Arab world, but well beyond that. And I'd like to see joint ventures between Israeli and uh, Israeli businessmen and Gulf entrepreneurs who are very sharp business people, joint ventures that can change the Middle East and then ultimately spread well beyond the Middle East. And we have the ability right now to build such a piece that would be beyond tourism, beyond conferences, even though it's an important conference, what's in the Negev today, where you have the five Arab ministers, we should encourage as much of that as possible. But we want to create a different type of peace, a peace that every Arab throughout the region and Muslim throughout the world said this brought great mutual benefit mm. to both countries. They cannot look at the peace with Egypt and see that. They cannot look at the peace with Jordan and see that. Israelis see it because they fought wars. So they understand that it's better than the alternative. But we have to have a peace that resonates. And that's really on us. So all of you who are involved in some capacity of trying to build those foundations, do it because it will help us also change the peace that we have with Egypt and Jordan to a warm peace and, a whole, and ultimately expand the circle of peace to many others. I do want to talk about, um, it, this is an issue for, um, for many uh, Western Jewish communities about the, the sudden separation um, between Jewish identity and the state of Israel. I think um, the vast majority of us in here are ardent supporters of Israel, so it doesn't really apply to most of us in the room, but there is a growing J Street issue, there is uh, probably a movement sponsored by Ben and Jerry's about the idea that somehow if you're Jewish and Israel over there is, is a bit of an inconvenience. Personally, I find that very, very difficult to understand, but maybe you can shine a little bit of wisdom upon that, Ron, because it's, you know, J Street in the United States. We saw some of those people at those um, rallies that we had at Parliament Square, Jewish Voice for Labour. Look, uh, I... I think what you see happening in the last two decades is the reemergence of anti-Semitism. I trace the turning point to the Durban Conference in mm. South Africa. That was in 2000. That's the moment where it wasn't just the Soviet Union or the Arab Islamic world that was pushing this attack against Israel. It was sort of polite society. That's where I think this turning point was. But the truth of the matter is what we are now seeing is a return to the historical norm of anti-Semitism. I think a lot of people felt in the half century after the Holocaust that these wild attacks against Israel were just relegated to the dustbin of history. And a lot of people hoped that that would be the case. But in a certain sense, the Holocaust has distorted the Jews' view of their own history, certainly the world's view of Jewish history, because it blocks out all the anti-Semitism that came before. The Holocaust is like a blinding sun, and you have all these, these, all these stars of anti-Semitism. You just don't see it because the sun is blinding. They're all there. The stars go out during the day. You just can't see them. Because of Hitler and the Holocaust, people forget the history of the Jews. And the history of the Jews is a history of about 25 centuries of anti-Semitism. And I would encourage you, I think whatever you're going, it's, you got to go straight <laughs> to the right, and then you'll get there. Yashar, 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 Amina. That's right. So, but I, I'd ask you to do something this evening. Go back, and, you know, it used to be in antiquity to be a great scholar. You have to sit in the Library of Alexandria for a couple of decades and read all the scrolls. Now you just have to Google it. I want you to look, I want you to pick a century tonight, any century, 
5th century, 8th century, 11th century, 15th century. And look at the anti-Semitic attacks against Jews. And it will shock you. Because the Holocaust is such a seismic event. You know, a third of the Jewish people, 6 million, are murdered. It's, it's hard for people to get their minds around it. I used to say in the United States when I was ambassador, if you're trying to understand that, imagine over 100 million Americans being murdered. And if you can't wrap your mind around it, imagine a 9-11 every day for a century because that's what the Holocaust did for, to the Jewish people. So in Britain, it's probably about 22 million Britons being murdered. And any comparison with what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine, as harsh as it is in the horrific war, it's not on the same planet as the Holocaust. In Bobby Yar, in two days, 33,000 Jews were killed, were shot and thrown into pits. In May 1944, in Auschwitz, 10,000 Jews were being murdered systematically every day. It's not the Holocaust. And people have to stop using this language because it diminishes and demeans mm -hmm. what happened, which was so unique, the systematic attempt to annihilate each and every Jew and target them for destruction. Mm -hmm. But we've had centuries of anti-Semitism that came before it. You know, everyone knows the name of Zelensky. He's now a Ukrainian hero, a Jewish national hero of Ukraine. The last Ukrainian national hero is a guy named Khmelnytsky. You raise your hand if you know who Khmelnytsky was. That's pretty good. You got about four people here who know who was. Khmelnytsky was a Ukrainian Cossack who killed somewhere between 150 and 300,000 Jews in the middle of the 17th century. He's lost to history because of Hitler. No one even remembers that anymore. And you have these anti-Semites that pop out and kill tens of thousands of Jews, sometime in a day, sometimes in a, in a month. It's a very, very harsh history, and we've forgotten it. And what has happened now is this old hatred has returned. Now, it's returned in a new form. Once it would the anti-Semitism was singling out the Jews and treating them differently than you treat any other people. Now you're singling out the Jewish state and treating it differently than any other state. And the irony is, is anti-Semitism has come full circle. Because in Herzl's time, many of the founders and the visionaries of Zionism, one of the reasons that compelled them to establish the Zionist movement, which was a minority of minority in the Jewish world, was the belief that the birth of the Jewish state would end anti-Semitism because their understanding was the reason why you had anti-Semitism is the Jews were a minority everywhere, a majority nowhere. And if we could be a majority in one place, we would be treated as other peoples. So they thought the, Jew, the birth of a Jewish state would end anti-Semitism. Now fast forward 120 years. Then they thought the reason why there's anti-Semitism, is because there is not a Jewish state. Now people say the reason why there's anti-Semitism is because there is a Jewish state. Then they said, the anti-Semites, Jews go to Palestine. Now they say Jews get out of Palestine. Israel is not the cause or the cure for anti-Semitism. The one thing Israel did is it gave the Jewish people the power to fight back. That is the unique change that has happened in the history of our people. Now, succinctly, it is very important. The, I called Mr. Corbyn an anti-Semite, and I believe that. 
I think in seven and a half years, I didn't call anybody an anti-Semite except him. I think we have to be very careful about using that label. But I want you to understand the BDS movement, the movement to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel, it's an anti-Semitic movement. There may be people who are not anti-Semites who join this movement, and they just may be what I would call, I'll be diplomatic, moral idiots. But the, the BDS movement is an anti-Semitic movement. But when you're going to put the scarlet letter A on somebody's breast, you better explain why, and I want to explain why. And I would get this question all the time when I was ambassador. Somebody would come to me and say about a church group or an academic group that was boycotting Israel or wants to divest from Israel. The first question I would ask is, what number are we on their list? What number are we on their list? Because if a group wants to boycott countries and we're number 10 on their list or 20 on their list or 50 on their list or 70 on their list, then I know I'm dealing with people who have a principle and they've applied it all around the world. And they've caught Israel in that net. And we could talk about context and nuance and explaining 48 and 67 and peace offers, everything you want. But I'm dealing with people who have a principle. But when we're the only ones on their list, I'm not going to discuss it with them. They're trying to delegitimize us. I'm just going to delegitimize them. I'm not going to give any credence. Because I know what that is, the principle where you single out Jews alone among nations of the world. The fact that you had church groups, and you probably have it in England, I'm sure you do, mm-hmm. it just makes it so much more wild. Because Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has a growing and thriving Christian population, about five times what it was in 1948. And the fact that you'd have these church groups that would single out Israel for divestment, or for boycott is outrageous, or that you'd have an academic group on a college campus. You have dozens of countries around the world where academics will be shot or imprisoned. So you're as an academic group going to single out Israel for defamation and demonization? And throughout our history, the defamation and demonization of the Jews always preceded the physical assaults against them. That's why we have to stand up to it. Now, the change that has happened is you've got the birth of Israel, and hopefully Jews have learned from the history. And you look, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. You see how one leader in Ukraine taking a stand has rallied his country and rallied people around the world. Now, whether people did enough or didn't do enough, but it changed everything. He wasn't like the Afghan leader getting suitcases of cash as he was heading for his plane. He flew out of the country. You have to stand strong here within the Jewish community against anti-Semitism. You have to explain to people why the singling out of Israel is wrong and an outrage and anti-Semitic. And you have to get people of goodwill to join you. And I think people of goodwill could be Muslim friends and Christian friends and everyone else to take that strong stand. We have been blessed with a Jewish state. Three or four generations of Jews have been blessed with that. A hundred generations dreamed of it. The last three or four have had the privilege of living that dream. With that privilege comes a great responsibility, and that's to secure the dream for future generations. And it doesn't fall on intellectuals or ambassadors or prime ministers alone. It falls on all of our shoulders to preserve that dream for the future, and it begins with taking a clear moral stand. If we don't stand for ourselves, no one else will stand for us.
I do want to talk about Iran and how we are at the 11th hour, how President Herzog, I saw it with my own eyes in Downing Street, thanked the British government for making Hamas an illegal organization, but at the same time telling them to get their act together in Vienna as these talks go on and off and on and off and Iran buying time and slowly but surely enriching uranium and making themselves a nuclear power. May I have your comments, both of you, let's start with you, Ed, about Iran, how we deal with that, and actually their growing menace has actually perhaps been the, 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 the grist, the oil of the Abraham Accords as well. So on Iran, the most important issue is that Iran wants to become the defenders of Jerusalem. And no other government in the region has made so much noise about Jerusalem in the last five to eight years than the Iranian government on a regular basis. They attack the, the US, they attack Israel, and they attack the UK on a regular basis. The, the issue with Iran is that the sooner this clerical regime falls or is made to fall, the healthier, the more prosperous the rest of the region will be. Yes, the Iranian clerical regime has led to an alliance between the Jewish state and several Arab and Muslim states. But ultimately, it's Iran's financing power into Hamas, into Hezbollah, into the Houthis, and the fact that the, even the Muslim Brotherhood, for that one year that they governed Egypt, went to visit the Iranians twice, was one of the reasons why the, the Gulf Arab leaders very quickly realized that what we're breeding among ourselves you know, with the Muslim Brotherhood aligned itself with Iran and then the far left across the campus spaces and the media spaces in the West means that there's a global mood music. The, the Iranians have been a blessing in uniting the, the Israelis, the Gulf Arab countries, Sunni Muslim countries, and more recently Turkey uh, against the current regime that's there. Now, there are, you know, 80 million people in Iran. I'm prepared to say at least 75 million of them are not people who are religious fanatics. Our challenge is how is it that we get through to, to those individuals to reclaim their great civilization, which is Iranian-Persian civilization, and oust that regime. That regime, as you said correctly, Ron, is an aberration. And you know, I'm a Sunni Muslim, mainstream Hanafi Sunni. I don't you know, shy away from the identity. But the Iranian regime, as a Shia regime, is a politicized anti-Israeli, anti-Sunni, anti-Muslim history regime. So this is a problem that we have in our midst inside the House of Islam. And I'll end by saying this, that if Iran continues to do what it's doing, in other words, fund extremist organizations that are attacking even the Saudis, i.e. the Houthi attacks, into Saudi Arabia yesterday and you know, multiple attacks previously, that doesn't leave the Saudis with many other options other than to unleash their own dogs of hell which is their own Wahhabi extremist terrorist movements, because you can't fight terrorist movements with just drones and uh, uh, in, uh, other conventional methods. You've got to fight them where they're most effective among populations, in hospitals, in schools, in mosques. And the Wahhabi movement's been held back in the last uh, you know, eight to ten years. If the Iranian re uh, nuclear deal goes through, the Iranian coffers get you know, enriched, the uranium program is then put on boosters, and then what you have is a willingness in the rest of the region to not only unleash their own dogs of hell, but to join the nuclear race itself. So what it does is it creates a Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, and other countries that want to then contend, contest, and indeed defeat the Iranian nuclear program. So the upsides of this are very few, 
but but Ron will speak much more succinctly. Yeah, I will. <laughs> much thank you. First, I want to explain to everybody why the nuclear deal is so bad, because we forget it. The new what the nuclear deal does is it puts restrictions on Iran's nuclear program for a certain number of years, and those restrictions are automatically removed. In the original deal, some were removed in five years, in eight years, in 10 years, in 15 years. They're automatically removed. Iran doesn't have to change its behavior. All we have to do is wait for the clock to change. That's it. And in those two words, automatically removed, you understand why Israel is opposed to it. Because contrary to the claims that were made, I don't know if the British government made it, but the U.S. government under Obama made it, and you'll see it here from Biden people today. They say that this deal blocks Iran's path to the bomb. It does not. It paves Iran's path to a nuclear arsenal. The best that can be said about the deal, that it makes it very unlikely that Iran would break out to a bomb in a decade. And the price of that is it virtually guarantees that Iran will break out to a nuclear arsenal in the second decade, while at the same time removing all the sanctions, which has hundreds of billions of dollars flowing into Iranian coffers. And as those, that money goes in, they're not doing it to uh, establish a GI Bill for returning members of the Revolutionary Guard. They're doing it to fuel their campaign of conquest and aggression throughout the region with our Sunni Arab neighbors, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Gaza. They will fuel this war of aggression against us. So you haven't solved the problem at all, and you've now made the current situation and the regional aggression infinitely worse by freeing them up. Israel would support a deal that would actually get the one existential threat we face, which is a nuclear-armed Iran, get that off the table. But that's not what the deal does. And it doesn't even freeze the program. Some of you may be thinking, well, we'll have a 10 years. You know, the king could die, the dog could die, everybody knows the story. <laughs> it doesn't freeze anything. Iran is allowed to develop its nuclear program under the deal. They can do research and development on advanced centrifuges. They're working on their intercontinental ballistic missiles, their ICBMs. And last time I saw a map, Israel's on the same continent as Iran. Those ICBMs are not for Israel, they're for you. They're for America. And they're quietly, slowly but surely, putting all the elements of their nuclear program together. And this deal was made in 2015. That's seven years ago, so you're already halfway through. Some of the restrictions have already been removed. Next year, the ballistic missile restriction will be removed. In three years, it'll be centrifuges. In eight years, it'll be stockpiles. So we're going to create a monster in the region that wants to swallow our Sunni Arab neighbors and threaten Israel with annihilation. Now, if we were forced to live in a world where this radical regime had nuclear weapons, then we'll have to figure out the best way to navigate it. But to for have the leading powers of the world get together and to make such a deal is so outrageous in historical terms. It's like Munich. That's what's happening now. And if there's a deal in Vienna, it'll be Vienna 2, Munich 1, in terms of the scorecard for historic appeasement. It's a disaster. And it makes the prospects for war much greater between Israel and Iran and between our Sunni Arab neighbors and Iran, because they will be flush with cash they will continue their aggression. It will force us into a confrontation and it will nuclearize the Middle East. Exactly what Ed said. If you think the Saudis are going to just wait for Iran to cross that nuclear threshold and they won't, according to the deal, they won't have to sneak in or break in. They'll just walk in. 
when all those restrictions are removed, the Saudis will want to nuclearize, the Emirates will want to nuclearize, Turkey, Egypt, others. And now you're taking the most unstable mm. part of the, of the world and you're turning it into a nuclear tinderbox for no reason. What has to, everyone says, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is to actually take a stand. The alternative is to say and make it very clear, the British prime minister, the American president, we will not allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. And you put a credit with military action. We, if we have to, we don't want to, and understand that if anyone takes military action against Iran, Israel will pay the price, Bahrain will pay the price, the Emirates will pay the price. Understand that. So we don't want to see a war. But the best way to deter such a war is by making it clear to the Iranians that you're prepared to take whatever action is necessary to prevent this regime from developing nuclear weapons. It begins with a credible military threat. The second thing is you have to put massive sanctions on them. There are, they're not even being enforced today. It was squeezing Iran's regime tremendously. And the third element that has never been in the policy, not of the United States under the Trump administration, and I haven't seen in the last 20 years, it's something that Ed said, which is reach out to the Iranian people. I don't know if it's 75 of the 80 million, but at least two thirds of the Iranian people despise this regime. They've shown remarkable courage. They came to the streets in 2009. They had no support from the outside world. They're rioting in cities in Iran in 2015 and 2017 and 2019. They get no support from the outside world. They're your partners. They're your allies. We do not have a fight with the people of Iran. We have a fight with a radical regime that threatens us and threatens our Arab neighbors. And one other thing I want to say in this succinct response, it's very important. <laughs> you remember that there were six party talks with North Korea in the 90s and the early 2000s. There were six party talks. Two of those parties were Japan and South Korea. And they begged the Clinton administration at the time and the Bush administration at the time to do those deals, to make those concessions. Now that has to count for something in moral terms, that your allies in the region, these two vibrant democratic states in the region are asking the US president to make these deals with the North Koreans. For the United States, either President Bush or President Clinton to have ignored that, that's a, that's a very tall order. Now look at the P5 plus one talks with Iran. Israel's not at the table. Our Arab neighbors are not at the table. We think it's a terrible deal. Our Arab neighbors think it's a terrible deal. But what do we know? We just live in the Middle East. <laughs> but Britain, France, Germany, the United States, sitting thousands of miles away are going to tell us what's in our interests. When Israel and the Arabs are on the same page, pay attention. We're telling you this is a disaster. And I hope that people will come to their senses. Right now, the only hope seems to be that the Iranians, it's like hardening Pharaoh's heart. See, I said Dvartar. <laughs> that seems to be the only hope right now. And they're talking even about the IRGC, which is not the biggest issue. The big issue is a glide path to nuclear arsenal. But here you have this terror organization in the Revolutionary Guard of Iran that is causing, that is wreaking so much havoc and destruction throughout the region. And they're thinking about removing its designation as a terror organization. And maybe that will open some minds. I remember Ahmadinejad, you remember the president of Iran, Ahmadinejad. So he said 
He wants to wipe Israel off the map. So Jews got upset. A few friends of Israel got upset. Then he said the Holocaust didn't happen. So a few more people got upset, but not that many. Then he went to Columbia University. I guess he wasn't canceled. A guy like Ahmadinejad doesn't get canceled. Yeah. But he went to Columbia University, and he said in his speech in Columbia, there are no gays in Iran. Wow, now he was a Meshuggah. <laughs> now he's a danger. So maybe this IRGC thing will get people to understand how insane this whole thing is and have to understand where it comes from. Because I think five different people have asked me today, what, do they not see it? You have to ask yourself, why did appeasement happen in the 1930s? Was Chamberlain an immoral man? Was he a fool? I don't think so. You had World War I. 16 million people were killed in just what is the dumbest war in human history. And an entire generation was elected to avoid conflict at any cost. And when the cables were coming in from Berlin to London and to Paris and to Washington, it's all there. You read the history books, you say, what, they did not see? They did not hear? They didn't want to see and hear. They just wanted to avoid war. And that led to World War II, where 60 million were killed. Not 16, 60 million, including a third of the Jewish people. You have this terrible situation, Afghanistan and Iraq, no one wants to fight wars. The danger is we're heading right down this path where you have a real danger that wants to establish nuclear weapons and will just continue on its path of aggression. And if we've learned one thing about Ukraine, the situation there, when you have a nuclear power who's aggressive, your options of dealing with it are very, very different. No matter how many hashtags there are, no matter how much people are upset about this, they're living in the 19th century. It doesn't matter. When these regimes have nuclear weapons, your ability to push them back is very, very limited. Do not allow them to develop those weapons. We can still stop them, but we have to raise our voices now. Ambassador Rondoba and Ed Hussein, thank you so much for your words of wisdom tonight. Thank you so much. Now, if you think I add value to what's out there and you enjoy my podcasts, your generosity is a welcome thumbs up. It really, really is. Make a donation at jewishstate.co.uk by clicking on the PayPal icon, going to patreon.com slash johnnygould, or even you can buy me a coffee, a sort of virtual one, I think, ko-fi.com slash johnnygould. That's ko-fi.com slash johnnygould. And thank you so much. Tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts.